Welcome to our true crime, true family podcast. Quarantine equals no life, so we've decided to start a true crime podcast. I'm Emily, and along with my mom, Kate, and our cousin Paige, we will be discussing popular true crime documentaries and cases. Due to sensitive subject material and explicit language, viewer discretion is advised. Emily, she's not even watching TikTok. She's just about to go right back to sleep. (laughs) Okay, do you want to do... Oh, you can do it with no notes this time? Oh. Oh. Check her Mm. out. She's going to be like, here, it's the jinx. Sorry, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back this week. Wait. Welcome back this week. Um, we're back with episode five of the Jinx with my cousin Paige and my mom Kate. So episode five is called Family Values. And he is standing outside her door, yelling under the door. Rude podcast, rude podcast. Daniel's doing that? Yes. He's yelling outside the door, rude podcast. No, he's like on the ground, like talking <laughs> under the door. Like, I don't think the microphone would pick it up, but it's like he was like, rude podcast, rude podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Oh, that's funny. So this episode opens with clips of newscasts reporting that Durst was found not guilty, which, like, I could imagine the district attorney for whatever county that was, was like, are you for real? Because that was the trial in Texas, right? Yeah. Yeah. Emily's like, all right, to my TikTok have the decency to put my airpods in i'm just gonna turn it on <laughs> what is going on in this house <laughs> Paige is like i've never been so happy that i don't have kids <laughs> um people are saying that it's unbelievable and scary that robert durst will be released um yeah i mean if you like talked about him I probably would like change my yeah because he seems to just fuck people up who who say anything bad about him and you know my favorite county Westchester Kevin Hines from fucking Westchester has a lot of nerves saying that it's unbelievable it's utter disbelief I said Oh, fuck off. Westchester didn't hardly look in the beginning anyway (laughs) into Kathy Durr's disappearance, so shut right up. Jon Stewart of The Daily Show reads the headline, New York City real estate heir is acquitted of murder in Texas. Durst, who cut up body, argued self-defense. He says that's as close as the New York Times will ever come to literally just making a joke on the front page. Um... I'm sure everybody was kind of like, he cut up a body. How did, how did you lose that? And well, I still don't understand why they never charged him with doing anything to the body after the fact. Yeah. they, they Even after they lost that, you would think they would just go ahead and file. 
because they have all this evidence of him being like, yeah, I cut but it up. does that count as like, double jeopardy? Well, not if it's a separate charge. Well, but what shouldn't it have been a, a separate charge within the first trial? I mean, you would have expected it to be like multiple counts, but like, I think it's one of those things. Like, I don't think it's double jeopardy. I think it's one of those things like where in some cases when somebody's killed like two or three people like at one time where they only bring murder charges on one of the bodies. So if they don't win, they can then bring murder charges about the other people. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm pretty sure like it's out like I only know that that would be like some ridiculous loophole because of stuff that I've seen go down in court that I was like, wait, I thought that could have happened. I was like, oh yeah, well, so in this it can because of blah, blah, blah. Like it's ridiculous. <laughs> the court system is kind of a joke. Um, Gilbert and Jimmy says, or Gilbert, I don't know how to say her name. Nothing happens the way it's supposed to happen when it comes to Bobby Durst. And I've been accustomed to expecting things not to make sense. So then they're just showing like different skits, like uh, from SNL and more headlines and just like jokes about like Durst getting away with murder. Which like, even though I've, re- I've seen some of them before this and I thought they were kind of funny, but if you were like, your family was the one that like died in his hands, I imagine that's like very irritating. Mm-hmm. Jim McCormick, Kathy's brother, is saying, Murder one is a slam dunk. That's the phrase that was used by the Galveston police to me in person. Slam dunk, Jim. And he rolls his eyes like so hard. He's like, I fucking can't stand anybody. <laughs> DeGaron says there are some people that no matter how much money they threw at the case, they were convicted and shouldn't have been. And there are people that escape responsibility because they are able to mount a really effective defense. Do I think that's unfair? Yeah, I do think it's unfair, but we are in a capitalistic system and the people that make the money can drive the Cadillacs and people that don't make as much money have to buy a used car. Um, which is very Yeah, true. I was going to say that too. You know, the more money you seem to pay for an attorney, <clears throat> the more likely it is you'll get off on something this big. Well, you're also, it's also, you're just manipulating people. That's all court mm-hmm. is. Whether it's you're manipulating a judge to see it your way or you're manipulating 12 people to vote your way. That's essentially, like, you want people to see it from your viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't think about the fact that, like, you know, like, there are a lot of things, like, depending on who tells you the story first depends on what you believe. Or, you know, there's, like, just a lot of, like, you expect juries to go in, like, this blank canvas and they can sift through what's the truth and what's not the truth. And it's like, okay, but can you do that with your friends? No, it's going to be the same thing. Like, whoever tells the best story is going to win. Whoever's most believable. Yeah, and you get what you pay for. So when you pay top dollar for... A, yeah. You know, 
and people that are I mean like when you have top dollar to pay these people are like they know they've tested they do like mock trials all the time with like random people so they know how like things are going to come across like they have a lot more like resources But Casala says, whether it's the LAPD bringing him to trial, whether it's Westchester County's district attorney's office bringing him to trial, whether it's the FBI, blah, 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 whatever, the security guard at Disney World, he's saying, I hope somebody gets a conviction. I hope if whoever prosecutes him, I hope they get a conviction because I really believe our society is much safer with him behind bars without him roaming around. And, I mean, I just, I think, like, don't ask him for money and, like, probably just don't talk to him. Yeah. Like, he seems pretty, like, eh. And I think that's the thing. Like, he doesn't look like this, like, which I know is a horrible thing to say, but, like, he does not come across as, like, somebody, like, scary. That what? He doesn't, like, he just doesn't come across as somebody all that scary. To, like, he's willingly talking about all this stuff. Like, I do think um, Andrew Jarecki should hope that he gets put away. Yeah. But, like, he just, like, I don't know. He just seems so, like, nerdy. It's kind of like, ugh. <laughs> he's walking. Well, okay, here's a perfect example. He's walking around New York City with the agility of Frankenstein. He looks confused and like he's either holding a fart in or just smelled a fart. Like that's maybe both is what I wrote. (laughs) He says, there are times when I'm in a situation where I will have people staring at me. I can tell they're talking about me and they're telling somebody else that I'm me. There's a lot of people out there who think I killed my wife, that I killed Susan Berman, that I intentionally murdered Morris Black. And it's quite possible that he's killed a whole slew of other people. That is what I would think if I was as familiar with the media as I am about me. Which is kind of weird. Like, why? Like, I don't know. Well, but when you have three murders around you. Look, even if you didn't do it, like, you're fucking bad luck. So I'm not going to be around (laughs) you anyway. Well, when you've got three people murdered that are like in your life there's got to be one um common uh i can't think of the right word but like one common denominator in all of it yeah they all threatened you yeah (laughs) and she threatened you with divorce your friend threatened you with money and probably morris black threatened you with like money and like uh remember when you said you were a chick And he knew, but Morris Black also knew who he was. He read about him in at the library. So he, he yeah. probably threatened to, like, go to the cops about him. So, because he was on the yeah, lamb. Yeah, I'm sure he did. Yeah, because he was on the lamb. So, so there's, there's one common denominator around all these murders, and, it, and it's Robert Durst. Yeah. And... I, like, I, I still don't understand. Why is he even still in the United States? He's a billionaire. Go buy a place in Belize and chill. Yeah. Like, you know, Janine Pirro is dying to arrest Durst. And so if I'm Durst, it's like, 
okay, I know she's dying to arrest me. I also know her big point is going to be, well, he killed before once. Like, she's going to figure out a way to charge me, so I'm going to be gone. And I would think that Texas would try to charge him for dismembering the body. So, again, I'd be gone. (laughs) And, like, I would just get the fuck out. Like, I don't understand. Why are you still in the United States? And, like, why are you talking to the press? Like, but some people, it's like they, it's not even about whether or not what they're doing is good for them. It's like they just have to, like, talk about themselves or something. I don't yeah. know. Bagley says the whole Bob Durst headline had absolutely no effect on the Durst organization's ability to work and thrive in New York. Well, like, did I don't think people really associated him with the organization. I would think that when, you know, he started getting arrested for murders, the Durst organization probably, like, put out a statement like, uh, he hasn't worked here in a mm-hmm. while. Um, Bob's case was totally separate from the Durst organization. I don't know why you would assume. Like, Durst does not have, like, that weird of a name that I would have been, like, Durst, the Durst organization. Like, I didn't even know what the Durst organization was before I watched this stupid <laughs> thing. Bob's brother Douglas is the chairman of the Durst organization. I might be scared if I'm Bob's brother. Yeah. That might be somebody, but Bob just wasn't really involved. So many people probably didn't think about it. Like, he was an outsider in his family, like, even to people that knew about it. So Evan Krieger is Bob's nephew. He says Bob was always just kind of on the periphery. It was re- just really like he knew that was his mom's older brother. Um, and he said that like Kathy's disappearance and all the media attention that went with it just wasn't really talked about. He was 11 when Kathy disappeared. And he said that when he was in his 20s, people started saying, your uncle Robert Durst might have something to do with her disappearance. His parents are basically like, there's nothing we can do about it, and we just don't talk about it. He doesn't blame them for not talking about it, but he's frustrated with what he calls the Berlin Wall of Silence. And I said, I am way too nosy to be in a family like that. I'd be talking and asking questions. (laughs) Douglas Durst is shown saying, unfortunately, there is no haven from what is going on with my brother. Like, I do, like, not that I would ever actually want to find this out, but don't you think it would be, like, weird to have a killer in your family? Yeah. Like, what is that like? Like, it's just like, uh, did you guys hear about, like, it it would always be the elephant in the room. Well, yeah, I'd be like, um, we're having Thanksgiving, so uh, who's letting like so and so know that they're not invited? <laughs> um, and I do feel like it's probably common for families not to talk about it because, again, what are you going to do? Like, it's like you can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Well, like, what are they going to say? Sorry, world. Like, I don't know. It would be way worse to be the parent of a killer. Like, I can't even imagine that kind of guilt. <laughs> Did you, like, I feel like you'd be like, look, I just never really liked that kid. <laughs> Janine Piero says, I knew as soon as the verdict came down in Galveston that I couldn't get the closure that I wanted for Kathleen's family. That's what she said. But what I heard <laughs> was he got acquitted in Galveston where they had a body. Durst didn't deny doing it. 
he admitted that he killed them. Then he dismembered the body, put it in trash bags, and he still skated. So fuck my flimsy ass case full of incompetent idiots that has zero chance of working. <laughs> I've got to give up. <laughs> Janine says she was like, okay, guys, let's regroup. Find out what we've got. Find out if we've got anything else and where we go from here. And just fuck off. Give up. Like, please just release a statement that says, like, we fucked up. Like, we dropped the ball on this. And he killed two more people. Our bad. Like, just shut up. Like, why are you on these documentaries looking stupider? Kevin Hines, who I hate, says, we really wanted to try to figure out if there was anyone from the family who'd break and give us something. Like, fuck off, you fucking morons. Like, of course you hope somebody in the family would break because you morons can't investigate for shit. Like, I'm sure you were hoping that, like, Kathy Durst's body would be, like, dropped off with a note attached saying, like, hey, I just killed her. Love, Bob Durst. One of the things that always bothered Kevin about the case is he said, here's Seymour Durst, one of the five most powerful real estate people in the city, and his daughter-in-law goes missing, and there's not one hint of it in the police files that this is this big, gigantic case. Like, what the fuck is your point? Like, Seymour Durst knows what he gave birth to, and um, just, you know, flashback. He had his kid watch their mom commit suicide. So, like, I don't know why you're thinking he's going to be some, like, measure of, like, do the right thing. Because he's not. I I hate, I hate Westchester. (laughs) They're so fucking stupid. Like, what's he going to say? Oh, um, my daughter-in-law is missing. And, like, look, my shifty, beady-eyed son is acting weird around town. Like. She wanted to have a baby, and he's like, "Well, fuck you, get an abortion." Like, uh, there's, uh, I hate them. <laughs> Detective Ed Murphy says there's no interviews with anybody from Bob's family in the original case folder, which is kind of strange. Like, kind of strange. Or you, you thought she ran away, so you didn't even bother investigate. Just say that we thought she ran away. We made one call, and we were done. Seymour Durst, if Seymour Durst is worth a couple hundred millions of dollars, you want to find out what he thinks of his missing daughter-in-law. Like, you found that strange, really? Seems like standard step even the dumbest of cops would think of, right? Like, no, you all just were like, eh. Okay, well, she must have ran away. I don't... (laughs) The jerky asked Durst if his father engaged in any way when Kathy disappeared. Did he do anything? And Durst is like, he really, really wanted to leave it to me. Jarecki asks, do you think that Seymour ever thought that you might have had anything to do with her disappearance? Durst is like, I haven't the faintest idea. I highly doubt it. But Seymour's thoughts were inscrutable. Like, I think that Seymour would not have cared if he thought his kid did it. I don't like I don't I don't know why you're like trying to act like this is so weird like he's weird he's weird and he raised weird kids like why do you meet these weird ass kids and then you're like asking the parents like oh what goes on there like uh, they raise those weirdos <laughs> they're probably weird themselves 
Like, I don't... Uh, and, like, all of these Durst, like, kids that they show in this, well, I guess really only Douglas, but, like, even the nephew, like, they're all a little bit off. Like, they look weird. They act weird. They're weirdos. <laughs> Raised by weirdos. So, like, what what insight are you getting? <laughs> And I wrote, now, I'm not sure what their point in saying this is, because it comes across to me as if they think that Seymour should have called and requested they interview him, and that somehow points to Seymour covering for Bob. But, I mean, this is also the same man that got a seven-year-old out of bed to watch his mother jump off a roof to her death, so, like, I don't get why you think it's weird. (laughs) Struck says... 10, 11 weeks after the case began, I received a call. A male voice on the other end says, Hi, Mike. It's Nick Scarpetta. And he requests that all communication going forward go through me. He says, that's the classic lawyering up. Like, thank you. You fucking idiot. Jim McCormick says, if you don't have anything to hide and you've dropped your wife off at the train station, why would you go out and hire a criminal defense attorney? And I wrote, I'm because they are rich and know better than to wait until the point of you need a lawyer to get a lawyer. A lawyer can walk you through everything. Mm -hmm. Like, who knows? But I feel like if I was rich, I would have done the same thing. Like, if you're saying it's a disappearance and my wife has gone missing and I don't have the evidence that like, oh no, here is video electronic whatever proof that she was here there and everywhere away from me then i'm gonna hire an attorney to like make those things not problems before they become problems yeah and like i mean it's just look at how many people go to jail because they didn't think that they needed a lawyer and then they end up in jail and on trauma Mm -hmm. and screwed over like I I guess maybe in the 70s, 80s, like, that was the way people thought, like, oh, I'm not gonna, you know, why would I need a lawyer if I'm not guilty? But, like, I don't know, watch ID channel for a while, and you'll be like, look, it's not a bad idea. (laughs) Jarecki is like, you hired him to defend you from the potential of accusations. Durst is like, he was my lawyer, but he was supposed to find Kathy Durst. If he could find Kathy, there would be no accusations to be made. Drecky is acting like a jerk. He says everything very sarcastic, like, hmm, did he really do anything? He hired a private investigator that used to be a cop. Like, shut up, Drecky. You would do the exact same thing. Like, you're rich. You know better. Uh, They call so. They had hired a private investigator that used to be a cop named Ed Wright. So they call Ed Wright and ask if he was a private investigator in the 80s. And he was like, no, I was chief investigator of New York State Organized Crime Task Force from 1982 to 1994. He confirms he did some private work for Nick Scarpetta, Scarpetta, however you say his name. He says Nick had gone into private practice when Kathy disappeared. Family members were pointing fingers and Seymour had contacted him to represent Robert. Durst says Ed Wright was able to get lots of stuff from the police. 
And I actually expected that, like, where they were going was, like, and right either didn't exist or had never been involved in any way. Because, like, Durst is so, like, he's like, oh, yeah, this happened. And then he's like, what? No. I said that to make them go away. And, um, like, the way Durst is, like, he'll say something like, no, I, I like, yeah, I told them she was dead. No, I never said she was dead. Like, it's, like, immediate. It reminds me of that. Did you ever watch The Chappelle Show? Uh, a long time ago, yeah. So, did you ever remember when they did, like, the true Hollywood stories with Charlie Murphy? And they did, no. like, the Rick James thing? No, I don't remember that. So, like, in in the skit, like Charlie Murphy is like talking about how like Rick James used to like be like a dick back in the day and um so like he went over to like Eddie Murphy's house and he was like grinding his feet in his couch getting dirt everywhere <laughs> and Rick so they show Rick James like and because it's set up like a confessional and so he's like see I never did things just to do them come on I mean what am I gonna do just all of a sudden just jump up and grind my feet on somebody's couch it's like you know something to do come on I got a little more sense than that and then immediately he goes yeah I remember grinding my feet on Eddie's couch The on-screen text says the filmmakers obtained copies of Ed Wright's confidential 1982 reports like, okay, so I'm guessing Ed gave it to them and then staged that call where he acted like, well, all of this is privilege. So he can deny that they got it from him. They show a page titled discrepancies in the recollections of various principles. And... Durst said he called Kathy from his house and then later said it was from a payphone in a restaurant. Then later a payphone with the dog. Now I'm not sure if this is legally something that is considered privileged, but if it is, doesn't that mean it can't be used as any sort of evidence against him? Like, don't they have like that fruit of the forbidden tree or poisonous tree or something like that? I don't know. The logic, well, I guess the logic behind it is like, if the source, the tree of the evidence or evidence itself is tainted, that anything gained from that is tainted as well. Mm -hmm. So like, even if he figured out the whole thing, it's not like they could prosecute, which I guess directly doesn't give a shit. He just wants to like make a movie. So he like, doesn't care if it means Durst never goes to jail. But I was going to say like, if there was, like, evidence, wouldn't he, like, give it to, like, not want to do that so that it could be used in the case, but never mind, Jackie doesn't care. <laughs> Bob was all over the place. Wright told the family that there was deception on the part of their son and brother. Strzok says he would think that behind the scenes there was a great deal of alarm concerning this matter. During the police investigation, the doorman said he saw Kathy arrive at the building and go to her an apartment. But in an interview conducted by Mr. Wright, the doorman told him that he didn't actually see her. Stuck says if he didn't see her, she wasn't there. Stuck is getting on my nerves. He says Seymour, the brothers, the family never offered to help us or never said, look, we have a private investigator involved in it. Anything he finds, he will share with you. 
they just further backed away. Like, who the fuck cares? Like, do your fucking job. Why do they have to find it, hire an investigator to do your fucking job? And then they're <laughs> supposed to hand it to you? Like, fuck off, you idiots. Like, what did they owe the police to do their job for them? <laughs> like, I, I mean, I get that morally it's probably the right thing to do, but like, fuck <laughs> off. Like, do your job. <laughs> if I can get on TV and I well, they should have told me about it and then I could have investigated it. Like, <laughs> you couldn't even figure out how to go ask someone a fucking question. <laughs> like, this jackass talks about it like their hands were tied. Like, well, I wasn't allowed to do that. Like, fuck you. Like, oh, shut God. the fuck up. Like, are these people not the most annoying people in the world? Like, I would <laughs> never live in Westchester. Or if I were like an awful person, that's exactly where I'd go to live. <laughs> Wright says there came a time where he was mutually terminated. He tells filmmakers that at this juncture, I'd be uncomfortable discussing anything else about it. Then the producer says, well, from reading your report, I can understand why you feel that way. And Wright is like, okay. Like, I thought that he was about to be shady, like, trying to get him to say something. <laughs> Durst says he must have had 10 meetings with Wright. Robert says Douglas was probably there for five or six meetings. Ed Murphy says at this point, if they come forward, they are admitting that they were complicit in 1982 and they don't want the shame or to have more to make excuses for why they didn't. Or why is it so weird? Like, I don't get, I don't understand what he was fucking saying. He just started, like, trailing off. Like, I don't think it's shameful. Like, it just seems like they make excuses for why the police fucked up. Like, they didn't lie for him or mislead the police. Like, you're a fucking detective. Go detect. Like, Jesus fucking Christ. Like, what he, like why are they making up all these excuses? Like, the Darsts had all this responsibility and it's like, no, you just didn't, like, investigate. Like, you just didn't do your job. That's that's it. The only people that need to come forward and, like, say sorry is, like, you fucking sorry fucks who didn't do anything. <laughs> I, like, I don't, I, uh, I hope that, I can't even remember how much longer we have to talk to Westchester, but it's going to give me a headache. <laughs> Durst's nephew, Evan Krieger, says, it's upsetting to think that because you're living up there on Mount Olympus, it's not necessary to talk to regular people about extraordinary problems. He's like, you know, a disappearance of a woman, it's a tragedy. It's a trauma. It's like a wound. And he's like, whatever I'm going through as a member of the Durst family, I can't imagine what it's like to be a member of the McCormick family, like my Aunt Kathy's family, which was like a very down to earth way to like, because I do feel like rich families, a lot of times, everybody in the family is kind of like, Ooh, you've got to protect the family at all costs. Mm -hmm. so it's like interesting to see someone be like, well, no, we just had a whole lot of money. And like, so I can't imagine how annoying it is for somebody that doesn't have our resources to have to go through something like this. Um, so then they show Elizabeth McCormick, who is Kathy's niece, and she was born two weeks before Kathy disappeared. So she doesn't have any recollection of how things were like before her disappearance. 
Um, and she said that she only came to an understanding of it when she was about 12 or 13, when people started remarking on our, on their physical resemblance and they do look very much alike, Mm -hmm. which I think would be weird. Like if you just lost somebody and then like, you see this child grow up to like, look like that, like that, I think that would be very odd. Mm Mm-hmm. Jim McCormick says his mom never got a courtesy call to say, how are you doing? How can we help? Jim never got a call from Wendy or Tommy or Doug. And they felt ignored by the Dursts. Which I guess I understand because, like, you figure that, like, they're supposed to be this big family. But sometimes families just aren't like that. Like, I don't know. Elizabeth says she wishes that the tragedy would have brought the family closer, but that wouldn't be true. There was never an explanation or closure. Everything was shrouded in mystery and there's so much anger and no opportunity to properly grieve or truly grieve. Which is really sad that these kids like seem to see it from such a different perspective as like watching like the adults in their lives like suffer through all of this. Um, and Jim says on the anniversary of her disappearance It had been 30 years. He went to mass and spoke about Kathy. Prayers were said for Kathy and for Bob. For Kathy for her peace and for Bob for his conscience. Kathy's mom says maybe something will come of this. Wouldn't that be nice? And I felt really bad for their family. Yeah. Because it is kind of true. Like you get to the point where like you have to forgive this person or like hope that they find peace because it's just going to drag you down wanting them to like be held accountable. Evan says he started writing an essay about my aunt Kathy's disappearance as a way to heal. Evan wanted to talk to Douglas to get his take. The way it ended up, it was a deal where he got to call him on the phone for 15 minutes. And then he changed it to like, no, I want to email. Then it was like, no, just 10 questions. Then just no five questions down to three. And he got three questions. So his three questions were, the first one was, what memories do you have of Aunt Kathy? And the answer was, my memories of Kathy are my memories of Kathy. The second question was, have you seen the movie All Good Things? The answer was no. And the third one was, do you think the Westchester DA will reopen the case on my Aunt Kathy? And the answer was, I don't have any knowledge of how the Westchester DA operates. And I was like, well, that was a pointless waste of time. Like, Mm -hmm. that's your uncle. I'd be like, fuck you. Like, could you imagine? (laughs) I just wouldn't even let, like, I could not even imagine even, like, asking Uncle Jamie if I could have a conversation. I would just call him and have the conversation. I wouldn't, like, (laughs) ask if I could have the conversation. Like, that's so weird to me. Like, I would have just texted those questions already. (laughs) (laughs) They wouldn't be part of my official investigation into my family. Jarecki calls Douglas Durst. He doesn't get through and leaves a message. And this made me laugh because Jarecki really seems to think he's somebody making these calls. And everybody's like, yeah, who are you? <laughs> um, and then Jarecki's just like a dick. Because he, he plays the entire, like, it was an entire like 
section of scenes that could have taken like 15 seconds for him to explain but he's like no I'm gonna have to show you how it went down so Jordan Barowitz returns a call on Douglas Durst's behalf and Drecky acts very stupid like he's like I did call Douglas how may I help you like he doesn't realize what's going on he just seemed very offended that like Doug wouldn't call him back Douglas wouldn't call him back and that he had a spokesperson do it which I find very odd that like that's shocking that the CEO of like a multi-billion dollar operation doesn't have time for your fucking little movie like it's not like Jarecki was some household name and Jarecki just seems like he's a very irritating person like he's he's more like the kind of person that people talk to to like get him off their back than it is like because he's engaging Mm -hmm. and Jordan's like uh you called him and Jarecki is like precisely and I wrote oh fuck off you look like a bootleg Corey Feldman with facial hair Jordan is like yes I'm returning the call on his behalf can I help you with something and Jarecki says I want to talk about I want to talk to him about a film I'm making like he sounds like such an asshole like I would be so annoyed I'd be like look I make more money like returning this call than you are going to the entire next year so what the fuck do you want and Jordan's like okay Douglas has no interest in speaking to you is there something you want me to relay to him and Jarecki's like Douglas is a character in the film he's certainly an element of it and I want to make sure that he has the chance to talk to me about it before we complete the film and Jordan's like yeah okay all right thanks click I mean like I guess he has to try to get to talk to him but like that was like painful well, but it just seems like Douglas didn't want any part of this. And for good reason, you know, he probably wants to separate as much as of himself from his brother and his brother's image. And especially after the whole, yeah, I cut up, I cut up this guy's body thing. And, and Jarecki is just like up his ass about all this shit. Well, that and like, look, look, I feel like people like that. Like, you're running, like, a big fucking business in New York City. Like, that is not on your radar. You don't care. Like, Robert Durst is not going to bring anything. Like, they care about, like, dividends and, like, their money and things that are going to do something or bring something either to their life or their company. And, like, someone like Douglas, I would assume that it's, like, company first. Like, even with his kids, it's like, oh, you have a recital? Yeah, I have a board meeting, so good luck. Like, Mm -hmm. it's not... And, you know, like, maybe that's not the nicest thing, but, like, I don't feel like that's that weird for somebody that's, like, in that kind of a position to not have time for your nonsense. Mm -hmm. Like, even if he did care... And, like, what benefit of it? Like, even if him and his brother weren't on awful terms, like, how is that benefiting his family in any way to be involved with this like the best mm-hmm. they can do is just say as little as they can about it and back away yeah um then shockingly we see Jarecki in a car 
saying, we are going to talk to Douglas Durst. See what we can learn face-to-face by getting to know the man a little bit. Drecky has never met him before. He says they're going to a dinner in his honor. And I wrote in all caps because it took me that long to catch up. Like, I was like, are they crashing a party? (laughs) And I wrote, oh, my God, it's a whole children's charity event in his honor. Awkward. Douglas was the 2011 recipient of the Children's Rights Champion Award. Like, what awful people. They're playing this very dramatic music. Jarecki's jackass goes up to him and is like, first of all, I want to congratulate you. And Douglas is like, thanks. And he goes, then I want to tell you I'm Andrew Jarecki. And he's like, oh, you are? And he's like, I mean you no harm. I'm interested at some point in getting us the chance to talk. Douglas says, well, you're not successful. Jarecki says, that's not his fault. What? He keeps going on about sitting down with him. He says, I would like to sit down and talk to you at some point. If you're, you know, so motivated. Like, he's not. He showed he's not so motivated. He's like off the record. Just sort of say what we're what we're working on off the record probably no such thing with him like he for sure would be like we're off the record and have a camera and then be like this was supposed to be off record but we were able to tape him secretly so here you go this man could not be more clear he had no intention of entertaining this for one second and like you're filming him at his own celebratory dinner so you can ambush him like Oh, God. And you left it in this film. So clearly you give zero fucks about respecting anybody's boundaries. (laughs) Douglas is like, maybe one day we could do that. I would have walked away and called security, which then that looks like he does exactly that. Yeah, I was about to say, isn't that what he did after he got directly to walk away? Yeah, but I wrote that down before I unpaused to watch the rest of it. Jarecki is walking around and says that it's almost as if Doug has become the eldest son. And I wrote real deep jackass. He says it must be very strange for Bob to not exist. Jarecki says it gives him a bit of insight as to why he wants to be in our film. And I wrote, um, okay. I mean, I didn't get that, but whatever. Nowadays, there's so much more information that's so easily accessible in social media, which makes everyone's opinions immediately available. So I think, like, to people now, it's, like, weird when people don't want to talk about things. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I was bet. Yeah, but you gotta you can't blame douglas for not wanting to talk about it i would want to separate myself i know i don't blame him at all but i'm just saying like i guess maybe it's like weird for these people that are so used to people wanting to be on tv and like if you're in the entertainment industry you're used to people like wanting to be a part of things that's probably weird if somebody doesn't but i mean this doesn't seem that weird this seems pretty like yeah, um, I have lots of money that, um, you know, like my weird ass brother doesn't need to taint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly it. He doesn't. He wants to separate himself from, from Robert Durst as much as he can, and I don't blame him. Yeah, I don't. It's like, and the the 
there's a lot of like weird things that went on in that house that nobody will ever know. Like I'm sure Douglas has his own traumas and demons from like mm-hmm. growing up with that father. That father was a sociopath. He probably pitted them all against each other and then mm-hmm. like talk shit to the like made it all seem like it was them doing it to each other when it's really he set it all up. Mm-hmm. So And, like, Jarecki, just, first of all, like, why do you think anybody cares to see what you think about this? Like, make your stupid fucking movie. Like, I don't need to hear you talk about it. Yeah. And he's, like, I, I don't know. He's just very annoying. Like, oh, I'm Andrew Jarecki. I mean, you know harm. It'd be like, get the fuck out. Like, first of all, if I'm rich and you're walking up to me and saying, I mean, you know harm to me, that means, like, oh, you certainly are about to stab me. <laughs> Durst is standing outside the building that he worked at when he was still working for the Durst organization. Like, they're doing, like, a walk through New York. And then a security guard comes up to them and basically is like, um, you need permission to film. Jarecki tries to make it a big deal that he works for the Durst organization or something. Like, I didn't get that. He's like, oh, is that for this building? Oh, so you work for the Durst organization? Oh, like, this, so that's the kind of, like, I don't like why would it even matter if someone directly from the Durst organization came out and was like you need permission to film on our property like it seemed dumb and forced like it was some sort of shock people wouldn't want to be associated with somebody who's connected to three different murders acknowledged mm. one of them that said he dismembered the body put it in trash bags and dumped him in the Galveston Bay like shocked they don't want that tied to them <laughs> Durst is on the phone with someone talking about how Douglas's security was all around basically chasing them off. He's like, they watched us and Andrew filmed them and that's how I spent the last hour and a half. Hour and a half? Like, that's a long time to be like yeah. dealing with nonsense. And I, I still don't understand why it seems to be that they think that's weird or unreasonable of Douglas Durst. Like, his brother seems like a, a psycho like I don't and it seems like he pretty openly does not like his brother Douglas and so like shock this person who killed and dismembered somebody who Bob describes as a friend his wife disappeared and his best friend was found executed and they were all people Bob appeared to actually care about but killed anyway but like his brother that he has this contentious relationship shocker that he's afraid of him <laughs> like not to mention Drecky shows up at like his like charity events to ambush him like I would have done the same thing if I was Douglas I would have had like the police there if I was Douglas yeah Drecky asks Bob about his relationship with Douglas Durst is like I don't get along with him and he's asked why not and Bob laughs and says they would need to go back to when they were five. Durst says, I think I remember he stole my toys. Their nephew, Evan, says there was sibling rivalry and then Douglas was chosen to run the company. Bagley says it was a betrayal of biblical biblical proportions. And I wrote, eh, I, if anything, I think it was more like 
not sibling rivalry and the father pitted the two of them together and Bob was probably annoyed that he had to leave Vermont in his fucking health food store that he seemed to like so much because his dad asked him to come run the company so he did that and then they picked Douglas like it seems like it's all the dad's doing and like Douglas just gets to be the vessel that like Darst is pissed at like he doesn't he didn't really ever seem like he cared that much about running the company or was that interested in it he had to be talked into coming back and I bet Doug was like you know like the company man from the time he was like 15 he probably like worked in the office and went to college and got a degree for all that shit and then like logically was expected to run the company because he had made it his life and here Bob's like uh what I thought I was the oldest I thought I came back to be rich (laughs) we hear a phone call between Bob and his wife Deborah and I actually forgot that he was even married Bob is like did I tell you I went by his Katona house and she's like I think I read that you did but I don't know if you told me like why is he talking about this and like I'm assuming on jail conversations. Jars continues. I was driving around these places I grew up. My family places. I really went. As he's speaking on screen, they show a headline that says, Bitter Robert planned to knock off his brother. He says, I really went there. My plan was, and Deborah cuts in with, don't say it, okay? Durst is like definitely not going to say it. Deborah's like, okay, but you told me what your plans were, and I told you that I knew that I had a feeling I suspected it. Remember, if I suspected, he knew it too. Which is very weird. Like, so basically he went to kill him. And why are you talking about this on a like jail line? Maybe it was um a tapped line. Like maybe the police tapped tapped um well but if you went to do that why are you telling it to anybody why is he like i just he's like a weird criminal (laughs) bagley says when bob was on the run he pulled into the driveway of his brother's home in katona he had two guns in his car i think that convinced douglas more than ever that his brother was out to kill him douglas durst appears to be in a tape deposition and like there's a part of me that feels bad for him because like I don't know I feel like a part of him still like wants Durst to be like his brother but he's like such a fucking weirdo (laughs) and so the question is like the press reported that you had hired a bodyguard to protect yourself against Robert Durst is that true and he's like yes that's true and I just I felt bad he looks so sad and uncomfortable um, Durst is walking around the city drinking a coffee and he says I think that's ridiculous he's telling them that he wants them to f- photograph him in front of Douglas's house now that I know it's Douglas's house like um, like he's for sure going to like send the picture to like the paper or something or to Douglas They're like I know where you live <laughs> so Deborah's shown in a video deposition and the question I just did question and answer because I wasn't writing it all out but so basically like they talked about when they first met and like they asked if he was married at that time and she's like well that's a tricky question 
And like, cause like what? She was it 1982 that she disappeared? Yeah. And so they asked her about like in 2000 in the fall, did she know that they were reopening the case against uh, about Kathy's disappearance? And she says, yes. And Ed Murphy says, we know Bobby found out that Kathy's case was going to be reopened October 31st of 2000. He went into defensive mode. The next day he bought jewelry engagement ring for Deborah. 77 fucking thousand dollars. Yeah, I saw that. Getting married gave them a husband and wife privilege. That was when he signed over all the powers of attorney. Bagley says that a lot of people believe Debbie knows Bob's secrets, which I'm sure that's why he married her. Um, Yeah, because of the spousal privilege. So they ask her if they discussed reopening the investigation with Mr. Darst before they got married and she was like yes and so they asked her what did he tell you about that and so her attorney objects about spousal privilege and um, in terms of communications if you want to ask her about facts she knows the witness can answer that the response was my question was specifically framed to be before they were married and her attorney is like okay and Deborah's like, I guess that's that what he told me was that he was scared. And they're like, scared of what? And she was like, of Janine Pirro opening up the investigation. Concerned. Which, like, it kind of seemed like, what the fuck was the point of giving you spousal privilege if you're gonna, like, answer that stupidly? Well, I... Isn't it that, like, she can speak to anything prior to them getting married? Yes. That's what it made it sound like to me. Well, yeah, but like, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess I probably would have been like, well, I don't remember all the specifics that we talked about before we got married. Mm-hmm. Um, Janine Pirro says that she spoke with his wife, Deborah Sheraton. She called her lawyer almost immediately. She was somewhat polite, but I think she wanted to learn more from us than she was willing to tell us. Like, oh, okay. Deborah couldn't remember where Robert Durst was around Christmas time, even though they were newlyweds. Like, yeah, um, I forgot they were even married. I don't think that they're really like in love married. <laughs> and so then she says, did you learn around Christmas time of 2000 that Susan Berman had been killed? And Deborah's like, yeah. And she's like, how did you learn that? And she said, I was driving in a taxi cab on my way home to the city and I heard it on the radio. And she said, at that time, was Mr. Durst in residence at your house? And she says, I don't think so. Detective Coulter said he has never been able to put Bobby in Los Angeles at the time of the murder. I could put him in California. Ed Murphy says that they spoke to two people that said Susan had told them that Bob was going to come and visit around the holidays and she was looking forward to it. Bob went out to Northern California sometime close to Susan's murder. He was in Trinidad, California. 
Jar says he had lived there off and on. Like, who just, like, randomly lived? Like, just random houses in random-ass places. <laughs> Bob says he got to California a long time before Christmas. Apparently, Jar's kept his car at the airport, which I don't... what. Why wouldn't you just keep it at your house? Detective Coulter says the parking facility at the Arcata Airport kept logs, a daily log of the vehicles that are kept in the lot. Bobby had gotten his vehicle out of long, long-term parking on the 19th of December. Ed Murphy says Bob had at least one calling card that we found in his records. Um, they found two calls the next day on the 20th from a payphone in the town of Garberville. Garberville is about 80, 90 miles south of Trinidad. Then he says that makes sense going south. He's headed down and I wrote, thank you for that. I don't think I could put two and two together. <laughs> Shut the fuck up, Ed Murphy. Like, again, and I wrote, I hate everyone from Westchester in this documentary. Coulter says Jers checked his messages several times a day. Two days before and two days after Susan Berman's murder, there was no activity at all on his, like, call card or whatever. Or messages, whatever. On December 23rd, he purchased a ticket to New York flying out of San Francisco. Her body was found the following afternoon. And I wrote, um, Durst is like the world's dumbest criminal. Like, stealing sandwiches from Wegmans, chopping someone up, sending a stupid note so they found the body. You would think that the longer it took for them to find her would make it more difficult to determine time and date of death. Mm-hmm. And like, why on December 23rd? Like, wait till after Christmas, dipshit. Like, the coroner's report placed her time of death at about 24 hours prior. Coulter says that is plenty of time to get back to Trinidad from LA. Durst says the timing is very tight. It's a long way from Trinidad to Los Angeles. Darsh says, I would have had to go from Trinidad to Los Angeles. I don't know when. 19th, 28th, 21st or whenever. And then go back to Trinidad from Los Angeles. And then gone to San Francisco and flown into New York. And they just conclude that it's not much time to do all that. And the LA police had been investigating for a while now. And they're unable to put me in Los Angeles. I made, a, I made a note here that said he never said where he was at the time of the murder. No, he didn't. Never. No. He was never like, well, I was in this town when, you know, when she was murdered. None of that. No, he was like, oh, it's very tight. Very, like, he just says a lot of things that make it sound like he went a lot of different places. I don't know. It sounded very, like, a very runaround thing. Mm-hmm. And then, like, Jarecki infuriated me because his jackass says but they were able to put you in California and I was like um Darce himself just finished telling you he was in California you fucking idiots <laughs> he put himself there you fuckwad like Jarst is like California is a big state I'm like okay <laughs> Kim Langford says she went to Susan's house when she found out and I wrote would it be closed off as crime scene yeah, I wondered why she was in there, too, unless she was identifying the victim, which was a thought in my head. But, like, but I don't think, why... I think they, like, would have taken the body out and then would be processing the, the crime scene. Yeah, like, why was she allowed in there and even seen the body the way it was? She saw the body? 
that's what she made it sound like she said that she saw the the blood and her hair and the well, blood yeah, no, and but the... like i think that's just the crime scene after they took the body out but like how was the hair and the blood and because they have to protect the crime scene so they had like that's what i'm saying like they were processing the crime scene so how was she allowed in there like i don't know maybe the body wasn't there maybe she just like went over there when she saw i don't know i don't know who this lady is but didn't she say that that was like no way to have to see your friend I don't know. Maybe I'll get. I can't remember. Yeah. For some reason, I was thinking that she saw she saw Susan Susan Berman's body. Yeah, I don't know. Because I thought that, and I also thought that if you identified a body, they did it in the morgue, not at the crime. Yeah, but like, but also, even if Susan was not in the house, why was her friend in the house? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, it. Yeah, it was very, like, confusing to me. Yeah. She says there was a pool of blood with hair in the blood. It was disturbing, and there were bloody paw prints from the dog walking around through the blood. Which I was like, why is she there? Yeah. One of Susan's friends says there's no justice for Susan because she lost her life. There's just justice for everyone who's left behind. Which, you know, I've never looked at it that way, but that's kind of true yeah yeah it really isn't justice for the victim it's justice for the victim's friends and family yeah and i've never looked at it before like that and i was like oh okay but they they all want to know the truth of what happened her son hopes they find out it was a random act of violence like a robbery as opposed to being a friend or someone she knew Mm -hmm. and so the lapd released her belongings to sarab who's her son we hear a voicemail message and it says, Hey Mark, it's Sareb. Started going through boxes of Susan's stuff and I did have another box. So um wanted to actually get a reality check from you when you have a second. All right, bye. Which I was like, What? And then there's another voicemail. It says, Hey Andrew, it's Mark. Listen, I'm gonna make this quick because I've got Sareb in the restaurant over here. We went to his house, he was very uptight. So Sarab found a box of tapes, recordings, and a letter from Bob. They zoom in on the envelope, and it's the same exact block handwriting. And Beverly is misspelled the same as the note to the police alerting them to check on the body or whatever. And I wrote fucking moron. Like I did not realize that Beverly was spelled wrong on that letter to Susan Berman until the very end of the last episode. Oh my god, really? I, yes, I didn't even realize it. Like I looked at it, I don't know how many times on the screen and watching it and I didn't even realize it until <laughs> the last interview in the last episode. Oh my god yeah (laughs) (laughs) they even showed it side by side multiple times yeah i'm like i'm pretty sure they said it multiple times too i don't know if they said it they they... did i'm telling you they did (laughs) i didn't even realize it like just (laughs) completely went over my head i was just like Oh yeah, the the handwriting's very similar. Like that's that was where my mind went was oh that's the same handwriting. Wasn't oh Beverly is spelled the exact same way. Well yeah, you probably saw the handwriting and you like tune the rest of it out. You're like, okay, he did it. 
yeah it could have been that i don't know what it was but yeah <laughs> that's I, hilarious i've seen it i don't know how many times but like why would you even like write it out like type it up <laughs> or like cut some letters out of a newspaper like magazines like old school style like why would you ever give them a handwritten note and i read jesus christ <laughs> And I did feel bad for Sreb because he, like, really didn't want to believe it. But, like, you could see him kind of, like, having to come to the conclusion that it's true. Well, I think he probably, in the back of his mind, knew it was true. But he just didn't want to believe that it was. Yes, and then yeah, when he yeah. saw the lettering on the um, on the cadaver note and then the letter from the Susan note, um, he had to admit it to himself. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because uh, he did. He did seem very distraught when they said, "You know, do you think you have your answers now?" And he said, "Yes." Like he did seem very, very distraught about yeah. that. Yeah, because he had befriend befriended Durst. I yeah. I think he truly liked him and I think that was where the um, conflict of like emotion was, was that you know, he really liked Durst and, and he helped him pay for college and everything else but you know, then then he had to you know, who wants to have to admit to yourself that one of your friends has killed your mother figure and So Jarecki's on the phone asking someone if they can get the inventory of what was taken out of Susan's house after she was murdered. He wants to find out if the letter or any other letters were in the inventory. And then we see Jarecki go into a safe deposit box where he has the letter. And like, I cannot stand Jarecki anyway, but this was like so infuriating to me. He says, I would like to take the next month and, you know, nothing's bringing Susan back. And nobody's going to know that we have this document. So what about we interview Bob? We bring this up. We have it on film. And now we have something that the LAPD is really going to want. Yeah. And isn't that like... Um, Tampering with evidence, I would Exactly. Think? Withholding evidence. Yeah, I would think there's like at least two or three different laws you just broke. Mm-hmm. And he says, because now we have, without all the bullshit, without having to go through 800 different levels of discovery and all that stuff, we've got Bob reacting clean to this hugely important piece of evidence. And I wrote, um, that seems really gross to me. Holding on to something and potentially letting a killer just roam around so you can have a better, more sensational documentary. <laughs> like, ugh. Like, this guy has killed, like, three people. Like, doesn't that make him a serial killer? Yeah, I don't know what categorizes serial killers, but <laughs> definitely close. And that's how episode five ends. Thank you for listening to True Crime, True Family. Follow us on our Twitter at TCTFP and Instagram at TCTF Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us where you get your podcasts. So you don't miss an episode, please leave a rating and review. We appreciate all the feedback. Join us next week.